Hey, hey, episode 11 of Refi Podcast. Right here today, we're speaking with Kristen McDonald, a new friend of mine who works at ENIAC Ventures, has a background in environmental science. I first came across her work reading her article, Crypto, Climate, and the Foundations for a Regenerative Economy. Her writing immediately struck me as insightful. She has a unique perspective, and I thought it'd be great to have her on the show. We touch on some of the dynamics of moving the carbon market on chain, the trends that we see emerging, and what's going to happen as we move beyond carbon and looking at tokenizing and valuing these co-benefits, biodiversity being an incredibly important one of them. It was a great pleasure speaking with Kristen. I'm sure you'll enjoy the show as well. We're so grateful to have people like Kristen on to speak and learn about what's happening in this space at the intersection of climate and Web3. We're also working on season two. We might take a couple weeks pause to get ready, to shift things around, to speak to some of our listeners and hear what people have enjoyed and what people feel like could be improved. So keep an eye out for requests for an interview. If you are a listener and want to give your thoughts about how we can make this better, we would love to speak with you. Thanks so much for listening and we hope you enjoy the show. Hey, Kristen, good morning. Thanks for getting up right early to chat with us. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. That's so fun. Uh, well, I've been telling John about a couple of the chats that we've had and super grateful to have a chance to get your perspective on this whole regenerative finance movement from you know, the climate perspective, from the investing perspective. And the thing that I wanted to start off with was you said something in one of our conversations that really lingered with me about like, in order to succeed, refi needs to do two things. One, figure out how to embed these negative externalities into the fabric of money. And two, take care of the commons. Did I get that right? Or was there a different framing? And how did you come to this place of seeing so clearly what this emergent movement can do? Yeah, I don't know if that's like what Refi needs to do to succeed. I think that was the initial potential I saw in Refi coming at it from like an environmental science background. Um, I think like my original aha moment on like crypto and climate was um, I was reading a Chris Dixon like back in September kind of Twitter thread about why Web3 was important. Um, and I forget the wording exactly, but it was kind of like Web3 allows you to decentralize ownership such that instead of needing to extract, we can all be incentivized to protect and kind of accrue value to this central owned resource. Um, and I remember reading that and being like, I kind of had like a little humorous chuckle where I was like, oh, like any environmentalist would read that and kind of think of like tragedy of the commons and how do we kind of govern communal resources in an effective way and how do we incentivize um, ownership and, and coordination and all of that. Um, and so I think as I first started going into the refi movement, the things that stood out to me were like one Web3 as a coordination tool to kind of coordinate our ownership of communal resource and the governance of communal resources. And two, being able to turn natural resources into kind of programmable capital that could then be internalized into our financial systems. Um, which I think, again, a lot of environmentalists, like I spent a lot of time thinking about environmental economics and a lot of the frame has been through this lens of how do we create financial systems that recognize the, the, the impact that we have, because if you could do that, it would all work, right? Like if when you did an action, when you polluted, when you produced a product, if the true cost of that on everybody were internalized into that product, uh, you know, the capitalistic system would, would balance out and people wouldn't buy it if it were that expensive. And so thinking about, about kind of how do we financialize natural resources and how do we incorporate them into our economic systems is something I think about a lot. And it's something that, you know, I jumped out to me as kind of one of the great promises of of Web3 when applied to climate. And I'm curious to see if like Web2 is also trying to scratch at this particular solution as well. Like, you know, the, the financialization of natural resources and incorporating these costs. Like, are you seeing this emerging exclusively in the Web3 movement or are you also seeing trends in the Web2 side? Because I know your investment thesis straddles, you know, both parts of the tech stack. Yeah, I think it's a lot of things that have tried that have been tried in a web two f- 
scream. Um, like, you know, carbon markets exist, right? And in, in a web two way, um, things like the Red Plus program exists where we're trying to take, we're trying to kind of reward people for the value that create and figure out how to kind of include those. Um, you know, I would say things like carbon trading is is a way of trying to kind of financialize the impact that you have. If you emit above a certain amount, you have to pay and, and buy carbon offsets to offset that. Um, I think the difference is that the logistics of doing that in a Web2 world is prohibitive to scale and liquidity. And I don't want it like not permanently prohibitive, you know, but the way it happens now, um, I think, is prohibitive to it happening at the scale we need to actually have a whole society where kind of all of our actions are are internalizing the effect on the environment. So like I actually wrote my senior paper way back when on um, the Red Plus program, which is a program for rewarding um, countries who preserve forests and kind of paying them the value that they create by by protecting those forests. Um, and I wrote a whole paper about how like it didn't actually work because the people who are getting value for the paper or for the forest, sorry, weren't the people who were like protecting and stewarding the forest and actually owning them. And so you had this issue where it's like the the incentives weren't flowing in a right way where you could incentivize disparate stakeholders to protect this communal resource. And I was like, how do you fix that? How do you have, you know, 10, a local community, how do you reward them for their work in protecting the forest? And doing that at scale in a web two way is really, really hard just because the logistics are, are prohibitive. Um, and so then you have the idea of web three where it's like, okay, well now we have programmable contracts. Now we can automate all of this um, and you can own it and you don't have to trust in a centralized government that they're going to come and pay you when you don't chop down that tree. So that concept I think is, is kind of the unlock of, of web three is taking those ideas and saying, okay, let's remove the, the logistical bureaucratic barriers to this scaling and hitting liquidity and hitting kind of access that can't happen today. Mm. When you, so I'm curious what your path to get to, you know, talking about this idea of embedding externalities into the costs of products and um, financializing natural capital assets. Was that the focus of your studies when you were, because you did a degree in environmental studies, right? Were you, was, yeah. Did you take quite a strong like finance and economics look at that or what was the path to where you are now? Yeah, it was funny. I So I started with a, a degree in environmental studies and like my first summer, I was all bright eyed and bushy tailed. And I went and worked at an NGO focused on biodiversity, uh, focused on species conservation. Um, and the like bureaucratic inertia of just getting nothing done was so wild. Like the amount of money that came in and you know, was put towards doing this one thing, but didn't actually create any sort of systemic change or, or difference, or sometimes didn't create change at all, was so frustrating for me. I'm like a highly optimized, efficient person. And I was like, this is, this, this can't be the way. This is like, nothing's going to change if this is what we're doing. Um, and then I just so happened to get an internship working for a real estate investment company that was not at all climate focused, had no, no climate mandate, but they were happened to be investing in a, an ocean thermal energy conversion plant. Um, and the speed at which things happen when investor money is, is, is on the line and when you're trying to make returns and you're assessing things that you know can scale. Um, and it kind of occurred to me that like efficient capital allocation is a really, really powerful tool. And how do you create systems that can like self-propagate? You create systems that are financially sustainable because it incentivized the continuation of that process. Um, and that was kind of the light bulb that went off in my head of, you know, the climate kind of problem is really, it's really an economics problem. It's really how do we incentivize behavior that is beneficial for, for everyone, but we just have created a broken system where we're not incentivizing people to act in a way that's, that's in their own self-interest. Um, and so that's what mm -hmm. really sparked my thinking around okay, how do we explore, how do we explore pulling those externalities into our capitalistic system such that the, the real impact of what I'm doing is going to be reflected and it's going to drive my behavior? So maybe another way to put that is right now, businesses especially, but you know, our system is optimized for this one particular metric, which is profit. And 
part of the goal is to expand the definition or how profit is calculated, which is another kind of way of thinking about internalizing externalities, right? If all of a sudden I have to pay for my carbon footprint, that cuts into my profit, which means I need to include that in my calculus as a business to decide how I operate and kind of the pricing strategy and so on. Is that, is that, am I getting that more or less right? Yeah, that's probably fair. I think that's kind of the, the first step of, of thinking about it and the kind of more realistic, pragmatic step of, you know, what, what do we need to do today to, to change some of our behaviorisms? I think over the long term, there's a slightly more meta question around, you know, should we be creating economies where we're kind of incentivized to extract and the only way that we think about our impact is if we have to pay for it versus, um, you know, finding ways to center our behavior around creating value for each other or creating value for ourselves in a, in a more like mutualistic way. So that's, again, the kind of jumping back to Web3, like the kind of real world promises, okay, well, we can tokenize carbon and then we can, you know, create a liquid market and then people can own it and accrue value. And eventually, hopefully there's, you know, a regulatory impact where where people have to internalize it, et cetera. Um, And then there's a kind of meta concept of, well, what if we could rethink how our communities are, are working such that we're all actually incentivized to, to regenerate and to create value for each other instead of just extracting um that's a slightly more meta application i think yeah but i think it it touches on like the different pieces of the web3 framework of innovation where you have smart contracts which as you described provide this way to kind of automate the relationships between different actors in a you know trustless way that doesn't require centralized intermediary and uh then you have this emergence of this new like organization structure these kind of you know decentralized to some degree, autonomous to some degree organizations, these DAOs, which are often aligned towards a specific mission and have, you know, tokens and NFTs and these coordination tools to be able to help incentivize those key behaviors, which results in that mission being fulfilled. What what would you say is like the main stumbling block of the climate tech space, not understanding you know, the potential for DAOs, the potential for smart contracts, the potential for NFTs, the potential for these different building blocks of Web3 to make a difference. What's getting in the way of people's adoption of this? It's so funny because people are so, have such like a a strong reaction to, on both sides. When I talk to Web3 people who don't, are interested in refi, they are like, go blank in the face. They don't get it. They kind of don't think it's part of Web3. Um, And when I talk to climate people about kind of the potential, it's almost vitriolic reaction sometimes around like, yeah, of course. What are you guys doing? What do you know? Um, and I think there's, I think there's some legitimate stumbling blocks that we need to talk through. And then there's also just this kind of cultural clash around, and maybe starting with that, like there are people who have dedicated their whole lives to thinking through how to solve these problems, um, and their careers and trying to build structures that will really help. Uh, and then when people come along with kind of no background in the space and who don't kind of understand the intricacies of the existing market. And they take this kind of brash view of, well, let's just blow it all up. It can be very, it can be an affront to those people. Um, and so I think figuring out how to, how to better bridge those communities on both the web three side and the climate side so that people are kind of having, so we're discussing and, and sharing knowledge and informing each other and having a really collaborative relationship, I think is going to be really important to the success because one the refi movement can benefit from the kind of traditional climate space uh, and their and their knowledge. And two, you know, to succeed at some point, it will have to integrate and work with traditional carbon markets. And that's going to take that's going to take work on both sides of the table. So I think that's I think there's kind of a cultural um, rhetoric clash in that sense. Uh, and then I think there are kind of some you know pretty legitimate stumbling blocks that people hit. One of them is that some of the earliest applications of Web3 to climate were, you know, either not successful or or weren't taking into account kind of what a lot of the core issues were. Um, And I think now we have a lot of really, really interesting applications that are being built on top of infrastructure that a lot of climate people think is actually inherently flawed. So, like, I think most traditional climate people would say that the kind of MRV how do you uh, how do you get accurate data? How do you keep that data kind of how do you get that data verified in, in a centralized way? That's kind of what's what's most broken. And to then go build, you know, a blockchain based registry on top of that, I think a lot of them are kind of like, 
well, cool, that you're not really solving the problem. Like that's not really the core issue here. Uh, and at the same time, you're creating, you know, it's a market about creating liquidity, even in the Web2 world. And so now we have another way of doing things that's kind of fragmenting an already fragmented ecosystem. I think it makes a lot of people feel like you're not really focused on solving the core problems. You're kind of just creating new ones, um, which I don't think is is a super fair way of looking at it. But I also understand the point of like, yeah, these standards aren't great, but they're what we have and they and they keep the model moving. So let's focus on kind of solving the core issue before we build a new registry on top of it that, you know, exists for we don't know what reason, I think would be the mentality. I don't want to speak for other people, but that's my sense that I get from the kind of climate community. Totally. And I, I think I see like the commercial rationale for, you know, somebody like Toucan to say, okay, you know, these registries with these existing MRV models are the precedent. And in order to bootstrap the kind of real integrity based MRV way that I should say is uh, more trustworthy, has more data points, is more scalable, is more reliable, we need to first establish the legitimacy of tokenized carbon credits. Because, you know, if you have a Web3 native registry that uses, you know, distributed groups of people on the ground, remote sensors, satellite imagery, and like drones to verify, you know, the carbon credit issuance of a forest project, like that's all great and dandy. But if it ends up being tokenized at the end of the day and no corporate buyer sees tokenized carbon credits as a legitimate way to fulfill their net zero commitments, like that's going to be a pretty hard hurdle to you know, scale commercially. And so I, I see the kind of rationale between saying like, hey, the tech should really be fixing, fixing this one piece of the puzzle, which I hear you saying is that the MRV side, which is really where the market needs to scale. Um, and at the same time, also hoping that the advent of on-chain carbon and these, you know, liquid carbon pools can drive the demand, which will catalyze that digital MRV innovation because it needs to have lots of experimentation. You know, we don't have a sort of clear, okay, this is exactly how it's executed because a model for forestry might not work for enhanced rock weathering. A model for enhanced rock weathering might not work for direct air capture. And so I think like this is a interesting time to see the amount of innovation that's coming out of this space. Uh, and I'm yeah, curious to get a sense of like, what your kind of climate peers have thought of this emergence and, you know, over the last, I think, five, six months recently, there's just been so many protocols, you know, innovating, trying new things. Is it like, oh, this is a speculative bubble that's going to pop? Or are you getting a sense there's a shifting tide amongst the climate collective that actually there's something here? I think it, a bunch of things to unpack there. It's interesting because you're talking about like the MRV standards and, um, and the verification standards. And it's funny because I think you'll actually get um, separate reactions from different people in climate. Some people will be like, you're degrading the value of the standards and the verification standards. And they're not perfect, but we really need them to exist because we need to have something that the market can accept because that's how we scale this market. And then you'll have other people that say, well, we all know these standards are, are kind of not what we would like them to be. So by using them, you're actually validating them more and, and you should be just blowing them up. And if you're not doing that, then you're not really doing the service to the climate that you need. Like you'll get both of those responses, which is really interesting, kind of, you know, no one is happy. Um, and then on the MRV side, I think it, it's interesting because it's like, that's the way I view it, right? Is the MRV side of this market and the kind of registry liquidity side of this market can evolve in parallel and one will, will engender innovation in the other. Um, and so I think we will see that. But then, so to your last question on on kind of what people are seeing, I think people, the, the it just depends how kind of involved in the space people are. People who are truly web to don't understand. I think there's still a reluctance. I think of anything, the kind of Cambrian explosion of, of new product projects and stuff we've seen has just gone to validate their opinion that like, well, this is just creating fragmentation. This is kind of a waste of energy and we're all creating these projects that are not all of them can exist they're all detracting from each other they don't really see the kind of end goal of this innovation to then lead to best practices that then can consolidate into a market um so yeah but i think you know especially people like toucan have started to hit a level of legitimacy where it's like okay we have to take this seriously there is something happening here and maybe we should start to to dive into it i'm just like Every day, honestly, I realize more and more the the depth of the complexity of what we're trying to do and realizing that we need to be hyper-focused and pragmatic in um, the sort of 
issues or challenges we try to address, the problems we try to solve, because we very, very much run the risk of trying to boil the ocean and not having any impact. And I'm, I'm speaking specifically now if my, from my perspective um, as a toucan. Um, and I, I think maybe, you know, given your insights into, this is maybe a bit cheeky, but given your insights into carbon markets, um, what do you see, like you say, okay, Toucan has some legitimacy now, it's getting the attention of some really established, incredible actors within the, the voluntary carbon market. What do you see, and, and, and you know, right now we've built this kind of market infrastructure for tokenizing um, carbon, carbon credits from the Vera registry. We have plans to connect to other legacy registries. Um, what do you see as, I guess, um, kind of like the first dominoes to fall or like what are gonna be the things that prove the value of Web3 that it's just like this sort of unassailable, okay, we, we really can't ignore this. We really need to lean in it to innovation here because as you said, towards the end of one of your blog posts, like this is too big of an opportunity. Yes, it might not work and a lot of it is overblown, but it's too big of an opportunity to, to miss and we really should be pushing forward on it because we need progress on all fronts. So what do you see as the sort of like the most likely leverage point, I suppose? I think in terms of getting the non Web3 community bought in, I think the most important kind of first domino is seeing traditional institutions start to purchase on-chain carbon because they view it as more transparent, more legitimate than and easier to acquire than carbon that they otherwise would. I think um, you could see a lot of movement within the Web3 world in terms of you know, other DAOs purchasing it and, and kind of a lot of other DeFi applications of carbon that I don't think it will necessarily incite that same excitement and action of the traditional climate community as, oh, they're actually building a system that is is meant to work with our traditional carbon markets and that is meant to kind of act in that same way, but that actually reduces the friction to participate. Um, I think that is going to be, seeing that at scale, I think is going to be a really uh, important domino to kind of get people on board. Totally. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on like the emergence of, you know, there's toucan forks, there's alternatives. We've seen the likes of Flow Carbon, the likes of C3. Um, there's another one um, coming out called Carbon Dow. Like, how do you see this proliferation of the on-chain carbon market um, emerging? Like, what are you excited about? What are you concerned about? What's kind of your read on this part of the market? It's interesting because I, like, obviously I think there is at the end of the day, kind of liquidity and credibility is what's going to win. And so I, from a carbon standpoint, would like to see those markets kind of consolidate sooner rather than later. Um, and I think there's something to be said about creating kind of a meta registry where there's a lot of room for continued innovation in terms of what carbon we're, you know, we're pulling on chain and what our standards are and uh, what kind of all of our, you know, off-bridge kind of web two facing interfaces look like. Um, I, I think on the registry side, I'm excited to see consolidation sooner rather than later. And I'm a lot more excited just because I think that drives innovation in the rest of the ecosystem. And so I'm a lot more excited to see us start to see that liquidity such that the MRV side and the kind of project financing side starts to see a lot more momentum, if that makes sense. I'd be curious to get your guys' thoughts. I don't know if you're allowed to have thoughts, but... <laughs> I hope so. No, you're like. <laughs> what do you think, John? <laughs> I mean, I do, but I'm allowed to. I uh, know, John. What do you think? Yeah, I, th I think it's interesting. Like, um, there's a couple things that I see happening. So, um, you know, you touched on this concept of a meta registry, where you see, you know, Vera, Gold Standard, um, Plan Vivo, Climate Action Reserve, Pure Earth, all having their um, database of credits displayed in a single place where people can discover um, where are these credits based geographically? What are the vintages? What are the methodologies? What are the issuing states? What are the trends? You know, starting to really see a global transparent voluntary carbon market in a single dashboard. Like That would be really cool and helpful for a lot of different um, actors in the ecosystem. You know, the demand side being one of them, project owners being another. Um, but I think like the the thing in my mind is I would hope that we could also see alongside a consolidation of um, multiple registries into a single place, 
hopefully on chain for the added transparency and accountability and the benefit of um, you know the liquidity that's enabled through tokenized carbon. We could also see the emergence of um, emissions data coming on chain around people publicly fulfilling their net zero commitments with, hey, these were our emissions. These were the reductions that we made. Um, these were the changes to our supply chain, to our operating model that reduced emissions. You know, we've done everything that we possibly can and we are offsetting the rest. That's, you know, very difficult to do, but we've done the hard work of decarbonizing. And I think that would be a really exciting thing to start to see kind of public net zero dashboards being, um, upheld with these net zero commitments. Cause I think one of my main concerns is like, you know, tokenized carbon enables a range of speculative use cases. And if it doesn't really drive transparent climate action at the global scale, is it really making a difference? So that's just one thought that came to mind as we talk about kind of the emergence and amalgamation of this stuff. Anything that came up for you, John? Yeah. I mean, it, it kind of, the question demands that we look at the carbon markets in a little bit more kind of granular detail, right? So this meta registry concept, I think is, you know, I think personally that public blockchains are a natural place for environmental asset markets to run. Um, now, whether that meta registry is, you know, even, even in the case of Toucan, right, we can look at Toucan as you've got the bridge, you've got the smart contracts that actually kind of represent the individual carbon credits, the TCO2 contracts, and then you have the pooling functionality. Each of those even could be decoupled into their own steps to this process. And at the end of the day, in my view, the meta registry really comes down to being the standard data model for representing carbon credits as cryptographic tokens with all of the attributes tagged to them. So whether that's bridged by Toucan or by I mean, not even buy Toucan, but using Toucan infrastructure or an alternative infrastructure. If we adhere to that similar kind of standard um, data model or standard kind of token model, then all of those credits are composable and interoperable and you get the benefits of that unified market, even if there's like kind of competing members. So I, I think the more important thing, and this is something John's been talking about for a long time that I've been it's taken me a little while to get on the train, but I'm on it now, is the adoption of a, of a unified standard, right? This TCO2 standard as the kind of common standard that all of the on-chain carbon markets adopt um, so that we can realize the benefits of interoperability and composability, which is one of the primary value propositions of bringing them onto public blockchains. Then you also have the issuance side and the demand side. On the issuance side, I think, you know, once you have a carbon credit, then it's, okay, well, where did that come from? What information or, or data was provided, whether that's a report by a verification body, whether that's satellite imagery, you know, what is the basis of the assessment of legitimacy of this credit? There's a lot of room for innovation there that I personally also feel by having a standard open data model and basically open APIs out of the box, which is what you have with blockchains, that opens up a lot of room for sophisticated tooling to develop that all plugs into to, um, blockchain-based carbon credits. And then, I mean, I, I realize this is a bit of a meandering and this is a little bit no, of it's a, good. off the top. Um, on the demand side, one of the things that I'm really excited about by bringing carbon, carbon markets onto public blockchains is that we expand the demand sources from where they are currently, which is primarily matching carbon credits with pollution in the form, you know, corporates buying carbon credits to retire them, to make some kind of net zero claim. That means that there's a negative externality that's paired with the positive externality of the carbon credits. And because smart contracts have these crazy properties, we can create, and we're already seeing these on-chain, what we think of as economic carbon sinks, right? Using carbon carbon credits as a collateral asset means you can mm -hmm. pull that carbon credit off of the market for a long time, serving a similar role to retiring it, but it's not pairing it with a negative externality. It's using it to back money or, you know. So um, that, I think, is also something that we're just starting to see that I think all of this is it's worth just bearing in mind, like the maturity of decentralized finance is it's so young, 
right? It's only been a few years since this stuff has been around. And so we're going to see the overall financial infrastructure on blockchains develop alongside on-chain carbon markets. And powerful thing is that carbon credits can just plug into that automatically as both kind of mature. Um, yeah. Okay. Rant over. <laughs> Very. No, that was good. There was so much to dig in there. <laughs> no, I love that. Um, yeah, I think there's a it, to jumping, like there's a huge benefit to having that standard kind of come about and be agreed upon and consolidate quickly because then the rest of the ecosystem has something to develop and build on knowing that it's not going to at any time be, be pulled out. And so that's really exciting for me to see. And I, another kind of thing to dive into that you touched on is it's like, there's like the kind of traditional pairing of a negative externality with positive and like using this to kind of offset pollution. And then there's the idea of kind of creating new economic tools, like, like economic carbon sinks. Um, there's a lot, there's a lot of cool stuff happening. <laughs> I would also surface that it calls this whole net zero trend into question in that um, I, I know from my time at Terra.do and digging into some of the work of like Kristen Zickfield and a few of the others who've looked at this, that, um, you know, taking 100 gigatons out of the atmosphere or 10 gigatons out of the atmosphere after an equal amount has been emitted um, doesn't have a net zero forcing mm. effect. And so what I mean by that is um, it's not stabilizing the climate, right? It's still having a forcing effect, which is creating an increase in atmospheric temperature. Is that your understanding with the science as well? And do you think this net zero kind of framing is actually counterproductive? Do we need different framing? Like, what are your thoughts on this whole idea of, you know, carbon neutral net zero as a way for us to align our efforts? Well, I, I mean, y yes, that is totally my understanding of science. And I think most climate people would agree. It's like, with most things in this space, it's there's a difference between kind of uh, net zero and and decarbonizing. Um, and so I think like it, kind of jumping back to what we we talked about earlier is like bringing all of that data on chain so that you're incentivizing decarbonization before offsets is like that's kind of an open question that also a lot of people kind of talk about in this space is do you just create a permit to a permission to kind of pollute and then there's this really easy chain you just purchase stuff and it's and it's actually not net zero it's actually not stabilizing the climate and so that's I, I honestly feel like a really interesting gap here is figuring out how to incentivize decarbonization first how to bring all of that data onto on chain and then have that be kind of there for public scrutiny i think that's a big gap in the market and ecosystem today that is eventually gonna like all of the kind of carbon accounting ecosystem that's happening right now is eventually going to going to meet and have some of that data come on chain. Um, I don't know that we're seeing it yet, but I think it will happen eventually. Basically, I think this is in a lot of ways like a social and consumer demand side. Um, there's a lot of pressure that can be put on the consumer side. So by that, I mean, as a consumer, I have the power to say, OK, you claim to be net zero. Prove it. Show me what carbon offsets are you buying? Are those actually are those having like you know, I want to dig in and look deeper than just, hey, we're green. I ticked the box at the end of buying my right. flight. And and that is, I think, a lever we can pull that will push um, businesses to be sourcing higher quality carbon offsets. Higher quality carbon offsets are going to tend to be higher price. That's going to mm -hmm. then drive their decision making around, okay, well, if it's stop emitting a ton or buy this really expensive ton, Super I'm going to do more. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and I think that's kind of one of the, in, in Web3, we use a lot of terms that mean a lot of different things in a lot of different places, decentralization, permissionless, transparency. But this is one of the cases where this is a specific tangible kind of instance of what it means to, what on-chain transparency really means is the ability to go in and look at the the sort of retirement portfolio of a particular account and dig down to the individual projects and vintages. And um, yeah, we're working on some some things at Toucan, which are these like kind of carbon dashboards to look at your portfolio and your retirement history and down to see like specifically what what types of credits have you been, been using. And um, I think that's a really, that's that sort of like don't trust 
verify energy that's the yeah. sort of origin story of web free pointed at climate action which i think is a pretty powerful lever yeah super powerful i think super powerful except that i i, I don't think i don't i'm not a big believer in the kind of consumer forcing factor of climate action only because i i think we've seen time and time again that it, it's just not a powerful enough threat for people to care to that level and so I think there's a small group of people, maybe you and I, who are going to be like, okay, well, did you really, let's go see, did you decarbonize, did, you know, how high quality are these are these offsets that you're buying? I think most people will not. Um, and so I think it comes down to like it, creating kind of a way to enforce potentially regulation or, you know, for the, there are a few companies, right, that care at that level that are doing kind of trying to do really high quality stuff. I think at scale, it'll come down to creating a standardized way to regulate uh you know you can't you have to buy high quality carbon you can't buy trash carbon that doesn't mean anything like there's going to be higher standards for what counts and what doesn't when we're talking about kind of regulation saying that you have to be xyz you know close to net zero mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and I, i'm curious like holding that perspective around recognizing the role that regulation plays in reaching these targets by 2030 and 2050 how does this affect your work as a vc and the confidence that you have in deploying capital towards these you know end results of making a difference yeah it's a great question uh pulling this all back to the vc lens is, is a sometimes frustrating frustrating exercise um i would say that especially in the us it's pretty difficult to make investments betting on any kind of regulation um, only because I, I think it's, you know, unless that's your specialty, understanding kind of the regulatory landscape, it's really, really hard to do well. And if you mistime it by a couple of years, then you're kind of dead in the water. Um, and so that being said, like, I think one of the constraints I find when I'm investing from a venture perspective is, you know, does this fit into a market that's big enough in its current in its current form, like, is this big enough as is to kind of support a venture scale business without betting on potential regulation from the US government uh, increasing the standards? There are tailwinds that are obvious, right? We're obviously moving more, to more towards like transparent ESG reporting. We're starting to see better carbon accounting, but I think anything you do in, in a venture sense has to fit into the market as it is today without betting on regulatory change. And so, if you expand that, like, what is your guys' thesis for your fund and what's exciting you about how you're deploying capital to, you know, explore this thesis? I'm curious what, you know, really is giving you hope and getting up in the morning. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I, we, I tend to think about investing in climate more as investing in sustainability. Um, if you kind of take a step back and talk about what we were talking about in the original, like kind of beginning of the conversation around how do you create like economic structures to incentivize different reaction? How do you how do you recreate kind of some of our social systems such that they're incentivizing better behavior? Um, I like to think about investing in climate and sustainability, not just as, you know, is this a new technology that's going to be able to better pull carbon out of the air, which is important for sure. But I tend to think about is this something that is is able to create kind of some level of systemic perpetuating change in terms of how we think about an ecosystem, how we think about um, an industry, you know, does this create a more efficient supply chain? Does this allow us to kind of continue growing in the way we're growing in a way that is more efficient than we currently are? And so that extends to a lot of different things. Like sometimes it's very obvious and climate oriented, and sometimes it's, you know, well, we're going to make XYZ industry 10 times as efficient. And that is, climate focused in some ways. And so like, if you kind of take that back and think about what's exciting for us, like the refi movement and what you're seeing, you know, all of these kind of unlocking capabilities of, of the refi movement is super exciting. We like to think about making investments and the things that are important to us is ways that you're taking that and building it into the existing ecosystems so that you're working with and unlocking the kind of carbon markets that exist today. And and would you say specifically talking around carbon markets because so much of the activity is driven there? Do yeah. you also see the potential of pushing beyond carbon and looking at you know other parts of measuring and tokenizing environmental health and everything that goes beyond you know sequestered and avoided emissions? 
Yeah, it's that's something that I think is super exciting is this kind of concept of you're building this infrastructure for tokenized carbon. In theory, that could be the infrastructure for any kind of tokenized natural asset. Um, and that unlocks this whole new kind of landscape of, of what we could do with it. I think from a venture perspective, it gets hard because, you know, the carbon markets and the, the, the carbon on-chain markets in some sense are already so primordial and nascent and still figuring out how to kind of interact with the broader markets at scale. And then you go like one step removed and you start talking about environmental health or other ecosystem services and it that's an even more nascent market. And so um, it gets difficult from a venture scale because you have to think about how far away we are from those markets existing and being liquid. Um, but I think it's super exciting and I think it's kind of the, the next natural evolution, evolution of this movement is taking all of the things we've learned from carbon and applying it to other ecosystem services and other measurements of environmental health. Um, you know, I think we have this like climate change is so urgent that we have this almost myopic focus on reducing emissions. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, in terms of anytime you're creating kind of a public narrative, it has to be simple. And, and because it's so urgent, that's been our very simple narrative. The truth is just reducing emissions isn't really fixing no. this kind of crisis that we're living in. We have to kind of think about reorienting things so that we're creating environmental totally. health. Mm -hmm. And so that's the next evolution of this is like, okay, how do we apply this to other natural, uh, natural assets uh and i think there's a lot a lot to dig in there there's a lot to dig in there and I, I i you know i think about how our imagination like collectively our imagination is just so agile and we can think and talk about all these crazy ideas and they're so cool and it which i think is i mean that's like kind of the leading edge of innovation right imagination perceives innovation and then as you sort of bring it closer down to like, okay, how do you do this technically? What are the legal implications? How does this interoperate with the existing markets? How do you convince the demand side that this is a legitimate product? Like it kind of calls out more and more and more of these imaginations we have, which is fine, right? This is, this is the sort of like, I don't know, I think about in refi, we have this kind of Cambrian explosion happening right now where there's this huge explosion of diversity of ideas and code and most of that's going to die right most of that will go extinct but there are going to be a few species or individuals that are fit and do progress and we don't know in advance which ones are, are going to be it right and so we need to foster this really broad kind of evolution evolutionary forces applied to this because the crisis is so dire and kind of present that um i don't know we gotta kind of unleash the gates i guess um but yeah i think points well taken on like where does this actually kind of rubber meet the road? Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting on the, you talked about kind of all of the experimentation. And I think it's one of the promises of Web3 is like, on the one hand, there's so much excitement and and new money and, and kind of fervor for this innovation. And on the other hand, you have this, you know, increased liquidity and this composability of the space that allows so much iteration to happen in such a fast amount of time that it's like this unique kind of sandbox to figure things out. And yeah, 99% of it will die. But like, it's pretty rare that you have the opportunity to throw so much at the wall and just see what sticks. Um, so it's exciting to take advantage of that, for sure. I think there's also a, a cultural phenomenon emerging, which I find fascinating. So at Refi DAO, we have these founder circles where there's, you know, um, 50 or so regenerative finance founders who are meeting bi-weekly or monthly in circles with coaches, with other founders. And you see this like highly collaborative behavior set appear where founder of a refi protocol is contributing to another refi protocol that might not be just a strategic partner with a clear, you know, alignment for their own vested interest. It's like, actually, no, I'm doing this because I can help and because I care about it. And you're starting to see this new level of you know, collaborating over competing emerge alongside this Cambrian explosion of innovation, which I think is quite fascinating. It seems novel. I mean, could you imagine a Web2 founder? Super unique. Yeah. Honestly, even in Web, I'm going to get like skewered for saying this, but I think even in Web3, there's this culture of like, we're all going to make it and we're all to hear it in this together. And it's, it's a lot less collaborative than you would think. And then in refi, like I, I am shocked by how collaborative people are. It really is like everyone aligned to uh, like on, on a single mission. And the, the level of collaboration is, is, is just wild. And yeah, unprecedented, I would say for sure. Overwhelming. Confusing. Gives me hope. 
Yeah, and yeah. confusing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, seriously. Gives you hope. Confusing, confusing and hopeful. Yeah. How are you approaching valuing refi protocols? How are you approaching valuing Web3 ventures? You know, there's the kind of classical framework for valuing companies at different stage of their journey. Like, are there new precedents being set here or precedents that are just being broken? Like what's going on in the value space? Yeah, it's really interesting. It's it, it's definitely an unprecedented way of valuing companies. So like traditionally you would think about like if you're going to value a company, right? They're going to address XYZ market. They're going to take, you know, a 1% transaction fee on that. They can probably achieve 10% share of that market. You get kind of a potential revenue opportunity and and that's what you kind of use to come up with what you think that company is worth. I think this is really a unique in ecosystem in that you're unlocking um you're unlocking a ton more value than kind of exists today. So you think about kind of if you're to attack the carbon markets, um, you know, it's not just let's process the transaction fees as we kind of sell offsets, right? It's, well, now we have uh, a meta registry of carbon that we're going to be creating new applications on top of. And so there's this added like layer of a value created by facilitating an ecosystem. And how do you project what that's going to be? You know, we look at metrics like, uh, turnover, you know, the, the traditional kind of, um, regulatory carbon markets turnover, like I think like two to four times. So it's sec primary sales and secondary sales. What would turnover be in the voluntary markets? If we had DeFi applications, you know, how do you measure that? Um, and I think you have to have a lot of kind of imagination or, or, or openness to kind of new applications to be able to come up with what you think those those valuations could be. Because I think today, just, you know, coming up, slapping a kind of terminal multiple value on a cut of the carbon markets doesn't really communicate what the value could be. Um, you know, you're creating infrastructure that could then be used 10 times over for different applications that could then be, you know, now we're stacking ecosystem services on top of it outside of carbon. Like you're just creating a ton more value than I think otherwise would 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 be there. And so you have to, it stretches the kind of traditional, uh, the traditional valuations metrics, especially at the seed stage when there's so much that's unproven and there's so much potential. Totally. Exciting stuff. Is there any advice that you'd have for refi founders looking to get relationships with um, value aligned venture firms? Like how do you approach that conversation? How do you tell if people are really climate conscious and committed to impact you know, what's, what's, what are the number of factors that founders should be considering when trying to raise, you know, a seed round of investment? Yeah, I think it depends if you're, if you're speaking with kind of an impact climate focused fund or more of a generalist fund on the generalist side of things, the best thing to do is to say that, you know, you don't need to create, like, you don't need to measure the impact because the return is, is kind of justified in and of itself. It's not like, well, we're having XYZ impact. Um, and that's true, I think, for most of these markets. I think things that are important to think about is like um, being able to paint that picture of that market size for the investors you're speaking with, especially if it's a generalist fund and they're going, oh, so you're doing like nature-based solutions for carbon offsets, which is like a small segment of, you know, the carbon voluntary carbon markets today are like 2 billion or something. Like it's 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 not massive. And so painting that picture of, well, it's going to be minimum 50 billion by 2030 and nature-based solutions today are XYZ percent of it. But that's only because it doesn't, because it's, it's so hard to scale like the, the MRV component of it. And by unlocking that, here's actually what this could be or should be painting those market solutions, I think are really important. Um, or those, that those market sized opportunities are really important for, for venture capitalists. And being able to paint that integration into the existing carbon markets, like back to the our original conversation when we first started this is like um, showing that you're kind of feeding into an existing market and working with, in some cases, existing standards so that it's not a, you know, we have to convince the whole world that this that this offset is going to be legitimate. Um, it's something that can kind of easily fit into the existing standards today, I think is really important. Uh, and then all the traditional metrics of of team and customer discovery and uh, scalability that that goes along with any seed stage investment, I think, is really important. So, all things to think about. And would would you say like the relationships are slightly different as well between you know the Web three um, founder space and those VCs that come into it? Like I've seen 
um, I don't know, a, a kind of, I guess, more collaborative dynamic between um, people who are investing in Web3 and then the Web3 protocols themselves. Is that a phenomena that you think is happening across the board or is that kind of more particular to Web3 stuff? You mean more collaborative in what, like in what sense on the investor side? Yeah, I think like, um, you know, you, you see investors playing a more active role in the community and in, you know, the strategy and, and deploying capital beyond just tokens, right? And um, the kind of networks and connections, at least from my lens, it seems like the, the Web3 space as a whole is more collaborative. And I didn't know if there was a kind of trend happening in venture capital outside of Web3 that also represents a more kind of collaborative relationship driven um yeah, precedent, or if this is kind of isolated to the Web3 space? I think it's definitely a trend. Um, that, like everywhere, just the venture ecosystem in general is getting more focused on, you know, relationships and adding value outside of just money, right? Like money has become totally commoditized at this point. Um, and so I think there's generally a, a focus on kind of being more of a partner and adding more value in that way. I think it's especially true in Web3 and in ReFi, um, just because a lot of the investors in that space are builders and it, it's it's kind of a different mentality in terms of being a partner uh, in that sense. Yeah, Kristen, tell me like from an investor perspective, what do you see happening beyond carbon? What are you excited about in that space? Well, I, and let's like step back, like ju not just from an investor perspective, but I guess just like what from from an environmental perspective, almost like we, we've kind of hit on, you know, using that same infrastructure for, for ecosystem services is really exciting. I think the problem with, you know, the next kind of level of, of natural assets so like biodiversity or um, uh, other measures of environmental health is that they become even harder to measure uh, and even harder to bring on chain. Like, I think one of the big issues that carbon has faced is that you know, carbon offsets aren't necessarily fungible the way we would like them to be. Um, you know, different kind of carbon projects have really different levels of quality in terms of carbon um, uh, sequestration. And when you look at biodiversity, it's that problem times 10, because like, how do you measure biodiversity? What kind of biodiversity? Like there's ecosystem biodiversity, there's species biodiversity, there's protecting one kind of species, there's increasing the, the total number of, of different species in an ecosystem. There's a lot of different ways of measuring it. And then there's similar to kind of the net carbon, uh, the net zero conversation. Then there's also like, uh, you know, net biodiversity loss in terms of while uh, mitigation or avoidance is, is much more powerful than restoration. And so all of a sudden you have all of these kind of non-fungible ways of measuring biodiversity that to then bring that on chain and create any kind of a liquid market becomes really, really difficult. And then on top of that, you have the MRV problem, which is, you know, again, even kind of more complex than on the carbon side. So like with carbon, um, you know, we have some kind of standardized ways of, of doing it. And we're starting to see technology that scales, that helps it scale via satellites and et cetera. Um, I think with biodiversity, it's even harder because you're using, you know, you're like very, very manual surveys to go out and measure kind of the impact of biodiversity. And so how do you scale that? It becomes an even harder question. And then finally, the kind of last thing that you want to see is is the number of stakeholders that are involved in those conversations around biodiversity are a lot more diverse than the carbon markets. Like the carbon markets in some sense already existed and then we started to talk about bringing them on chain. The biodiversity, voluntary bio, biodiversity offset market is even more nascent. And so there's almost less to work with in terms of coming up with standards. That could be a good thing because it kind of gives us the opportunity to start from scratch and to come up with our own standards. Um, but in terms of creating legitimacy, in terms of figuring out the right stakeholders to work with, there's a lot of kind of open questions there. So that's all of the kind of like barriers standing in the way to taking this market and kind of bringing it on chain and, and kind of using the infrastructure that we're building. I think we're starting to see the very kind of beginning glimmers of hope of new innovation to kind of tackle some of those problems, especially on the on the MRV side. Um, you know, we're starting to see new innovation that's using drones, using LIDAR, using computer vision to go out and do those biodiversity surveys. And again, even leveraging some of the infrastructure infrastructure that exists today. Like if you have people like um, OFP sending validators out to validate certain um, uh, forestry data, like 
why not also give those people the tools to validate biodiversity data? Um, and so we're starting to see all of that happen. And I think it's going to be really interesting. I think we're probably a long way away from it, from it scaling, but you're seeing the kind of initial forays into solving some of those problems. Yeah, which is the step you got to do before scaling, right? Like to develop these technologies. And a lot of my work prior to Toucan has was focused on how do you connect sensor networks and uh, kind of connects the data captured by sensor networks to blockchains. Um, you know, crazy ideas like you can really measure insect biodiversity using acoustic monitors like microphones. Interesting. And uh, analyzing, yeah, that's a really cool one. Um, camera traps. It, it, there's a, there's some really. I would suggest if you want a pretty good harebrained idea. I just tweeted about this. Um, on how to use these sensor networks to monitor biodiversity, have a read through Interspecies Money by Jonathan okay. Ledger. He he recently posted this article, wrote this article about basically giving like giving non-human species a, a, a kind of a place as economic actors by creating accounts that are controlled by them kind of monitored by these sensor networks and you, it's i don't even i think it's its own whole side, this is its own rabbit whole, whole rabbit hole that that i yeah. might have to go yeah. down after this yeah absolutely um but no i think you're spot on um i i think it's fascinating and i think you're right to say like there's a kind of leapfrog opportunity where we could jump straight to on-chain markets which are global potentially could have these liquidity aggregation systems like the carbon pools biodiversity pools um and this web3 native digital mrv and kind of verifiable spatial data storage systems That's something a side project i have is working on so yes i think it's a yes and from my perspective what did that bring up for you john yeah the, there was something quite interesting there around uh a friend of mine who works at a large tree planting organization talks about there's kind of two main ways of planting trees. There's like, we're going to maximize for carbon drawdown with basically disregard for all these other side effects. And basically you end up planting monoculture rows and rows of like eucalyptus, super fast growing trees that you can say are going to draw down lots and lots of carbon, very cost effective, very scalable. You can mechanize it. Boom, 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 boom. But it's going to deplete the biodiversity of whatever space it's in because it's not creating a thriving ecosystem with lots and lots of different elements to you know create um, that space for diverse ecology to survive. And then what he and his team do, which is more expensive and more considered, is you have to really look at the natural environment, what the natural ecosystems are, like what interventions you can make, how you do interplanting, which pieces you can try and support from an ecosystem level, and you know they're finding that. There are buyers who understand that nuance and are willing to buy into it. I think there's also a kind of price discovery element in terms of how we value carbon and its co-benefits while it's still considered a co-benefit of carbon. But I think it's an interesting trajectory to see like this being separated from carbon itself and that actually it's a different asset. So like, yeah. when do you see that cleaving happening and how would that work from being a co-benefit to being like, this is an asset in itself? Well, it's so interesting because even like what you're saying about kind of, well, like if we just emphasize carbon, like drawdown and we we kind of do that as quickly as fast as, and as possible, as efficiently as possible. Like if you look at a natural ecosystem, there's a ton of studies that show that like increased biodiversity increases primary productivity, it increases carbon drawdown of that ecosystem over the long term. And so again, it comes back to this, like, do we have this myopic view about like, well, how many trees can we plant in this one space to pull down carbon or how do we create an ecosystem that's actually naturally better at doing that over the long run? Um, so I think it's really important to kind of change that narrative about how we think about things. And then the the co-benefits and like, how does that cleave away? It, it feels so natural because right now you already see carbon offsets go with the, you know, they're being sold at premiums if they have the co-benefits of kind of helping biodiversity. And so in some ways it's actually like muddying the water of like a carbon offset should be valued just on the quality of the carbon, not on the quality of, you know, the social justice aspect or the biodiversity aspect or what have you. Um, and it, it, it also brings in more capital in the ecosystem if you can kind of pull those two things away and give the biodiversity components to the people who value that and then give the credit, the carbon to the, pe the people who value that. Um, and so I think it's really, it's something that is really natural to happen eventually. I think the biggest hurdle to it happening right now is that we don't have effective ways the like effective infrastructure for measuring and monitoring that biodiversity. And so 
it's one thing to say, hey, we did this. And also, by the way, we verified that we did it in a way that was like nebulously net positive to biodiversity. So pay more for it because you can kind of check that box. That works. But valuing it as its own separate commodity, we don't really have the infrastructure to do that yet in the same scale. And so I think as that starts to happen, you'll see it start to cleave away. Go ahead, John. Mm. And uh, Well, no, I think it's really like, I don't know, I, I reflect a lot on the sort of darker side of measurement and how at the end, you know, that just kind of results in these optimizing for the measurement rather than for the actually intent of what's being measured. Mm -hmm. And so I think it, it, I almost feel like we need a sort of adaptive measurement system that's like constantly upgrading itself because if the moment we put a pin in it, everything contorts itself around that pin. Mm -hmm. So we've got to kind of keep ch changing the goalposts as our monitoring systems evolve, as our analytics capabilities evolve, as our understanding of the scientific and ecological dynamics evolve. Like, right, that that feels quite an important point to me, because otherwise, you know, you end up with rows of eucalyptus trees yeah. where people are clear cutting. Yeah, you know, yeah. so. No, for sure. It's almost like you have to start simple. You have to start with something achievable in terms of monitoring. And then as the infrastructure gets built, you can get progressively more complex. And I think one of the exciting things about the Web3 intersection is that it's it's built for that. It's built to kind of iterate and take proposals from the community and, and take in that expert advice and continue to kind of iterate on what the standards are. And that's something that's, I think, broken with the way we do it today is that there's not that room for continued evolve evolution of, of how we think about these things. And and incorporating the views of, you know, non, not just our kind of, you know, Western traditional carbon markets, like, well, we need to hit X, Y, Z amount. And if biomass is increased by whatever, then you get money for it. But like, also, how do you create systems that reflect kind of community ideas of, well, what do we want? How do we value our land? What do we want to see in that, in that capacity from a biodiversity standpoint? Um, so creating infrastructure that's, that's flexible and fluid and can be used in different ways, I think is really exciting and interesting. Yeah, so I love how you touch on that last piece around the communities and the people on the ground where these projects are taking place. I think for me, there's this um, pattern emerging around a real stream of innovation happening, focusing on carbon markets with this aspiration to stabilize the climate, then an evolution of consciousness recognizing that actually carbon's kind of a poor proxy for planetary health. And we really do need to look at ecosystem health and you know broader uh, other metrics for planetary health and then this final piece of recognizing that we as humans are part of this ecosystem and these communities of people need to be an integral part of whatever we do to draw down climate to stabilize our climate and to store ecosystems and so i'm curious to hear in some closing thoughts whether there's any like specific companies that you've seen cross past your your deal flow or that you guys have participated in that you're really excited that's really kind of taking a deep integral look at some of these challenges yeah one of the things that i've been seeing a lot that's been getting me really excited is people kind of taking those tools those, those community-driven Web3 tools and applying them to existing projects and existing communities. So like something I've seen, for example, is a lot of kind of work, workflow software around maybe renewable energy projects or um, carbon offsetting projects that then incorporate Web3 tools to get the community involved, which is really exciting because I think like, you know, a, a dislocation between the regenerative work that people try and do and the people who actually live there and participate in the community is has been a problem in environmental science for forever, right? And it's how you get this kind of nimbyism attitude of like, well, I want to help the planet, but I don't want a solar power plant in my backyard. Um, and so one of the things that's been really exciting is seeing, <laughs> totally. yeah, well, people, yeah, it's it's like classic, like you know, not for me. It's not it's not something that I'm excited about. And so one of the things we've seen recently is tools that are about kind of. Uh, decentralizing ownership in a way that gets communities involved in regenerative projects or in renewable energy projects or what have you. Um, and it actually solves a ton of, a ton of problems for the, for the project developers, because now you have a community that's on board that feel like they have ownership in what's happening, that mm. feel like their incentives are aligned with what you're building. Um, and I think that mentality applied to kind of any number of different kind of project development is, or any kind of different, projects is is really exciting because it's a, it's about using web3 tools to create that community alignment with a project that's really important um so that's something that we've been seeing that's been uh, exciting nice yeah and then similarly like finding ways to kind of leverage communities um to be involved like the 
like what um, what Open Forest is doing in terms of getting small scale people, small scale landholders involved and combining them with validators, I think is like it's exciting because it's about creating access and it's about using those tools to get people participating uh, in this kind of shared shared economy. Totally. Yeah, I'm super bullish and optimistic about um, Open Forest Protocol and lots of other projects that are looking at this. And really, like, ReFi has given me hope when I was looking down the barrel of, you know, climate change and all of the implications for what this would look like for humanity and you know, being a father. Uh, I'm curious if we could leave kind of one lasting thought, which is how can people connect with you? How can people learn more about what you're doing, what you're thinking, and uh, yeah, start to see the world from your perspective and see the opportunity that Web3 poses for meaningful climate action? Yeah, for sure. It's it's pretty exciting. I would say that I like this kind of innovation is something that I didn't really think we'd be talking about ever. And now that we're here and we're talking about kind of creating structurally new economic ways of doing things it's it's super exciting um and so yeah we'd love to talk to anybody who's thinking about that space innovating in that space you know wants to collaborate uh just feel free to reach out i mean hit me up on twitter dms are open uh and we can link i'm sure somewhere my email and everything else so people can get a hold of me definitely so yeah you're Kristen elise k-r-i-s-t-i-n-e-l-i-s-e on twitter Mm -hmm. and yeah i've really enjoyed reading some of the long-form content you've done with yourself and also with stephen wemple at sparrow and i just want to say thank you Kristen, for carving come out of your morning today to speak with us in the early hours especially (laughs) and hopefully this is the first of many yeah thanks for having me really really enjoyed it